0: second letter to the corinthians today in ephesians we heard twice grace and peace to you from our god the lord jesus christ philippians grace and peace to you from god our father and the lord jesus christ colossians to god's holy people and colossi the faithful brothers and sisters in christ grace and peace to you from our father and Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church, and Thess- Thessalonians, and God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. To Timothy, my true son, in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And finally, from Philemon, Philemon, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody notice a theme running throughout of Paul's greetings? Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Each time Paul begins a letter to the people gathered in Christ's name, he first greets them with the call of grace and peace to you. Grace and peace is the language that he uses for these gatherings. So what he blesses with them right off the bat. Now, the first thing that you might notice if you were like a Greek reader is that the, the typical greeting is this sort of, um, begins with this charan language, which is the Greek for what like greetings. And so if you're getting a letter from Paul and he uses this language, charis, grace. He's, he's greeting you the same way that the rest of the world greets you, but just with, with language. But then he twists it. You go, oh, greetings. Wait, he said grace. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is this way of of taking what's common amongst the world and then twisting it a little bit and and making you pause for a second. And so he proclaims over and over again grace and peace to these communities, so much that you would, if you read through all of them like I did, you begin to notice this pattern and how he is greeting people. And what this language does, this grace and peace language, is it sort of names in grace God's saving action for the world. Grace for Paul is this way in which God is putting this world back together. He's re-piecing it. And almost so much that the language here also has a sense of enjoyment or joy with it. Grace and the joy that God is redeeming this place. And then on the other side of the coin, he has this peace language that that peace has come into this space. Now, if you were a Jewish here, and you've rights to Jewish communities with this language as well, your mind would go to the word shalom. Now, peace for us generally means this sort of stagnant concept, which is like the absence of violence, right? But if you're a Hebrew listener and your mind goes to shalom, Paul being a Jewish reader as well, you would think of this fullness of goodness that comes in peace. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict in the Jewish word. It's this harmony that comes among people, that through God's action in the world, something full takes place. There's a wholeness, and this order reflects God's new call in Jesus Christ. And so everywhere he writes, he begins with the phrase, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is our first Sunday in the book of and so the first thing we sort of are going to ask today for just a second is, who is Paul, for those who aren't familiar? Paul or Saul, and, and it should be clear that these are, we think he changes his name similar to the way uh, Peter, Cephas, and, uh, and becomes Rock, Peter. And, uh, is that it's not quite clear that Paul just has two names. And so if I, now I, it doesn't work for me. If I go to Mexico, I'm probably still mad. Because Mateo, they might use, but it's not a very common name. But if you were John um, uh, and you went to, to Mexico, you would just be Juan, right? That, that, that's what they would call you as Juan, and your actual name is John. Paul has this sort of Hebrew name and this Greek name. Um, but we meet him in the book of Acts. He's there at a weird time. He's there as they've drug one of the Christians, the earlier believers, in, this, in sort of this new thing taking root in synagogues at the time. And they drag him out of town, and they stone him to death. And at the end of that story, it says and that Saul was there watching. Is sort of what happens there, which is a weird way to be introduced to a character. That's the first reference to him in the New Testament. And then what happens is, is that he's blinded on the road to going to persecute more Christians, and he prays or he hears a voice that says, "Saul, why do you persecute me?" Now Paul has this interesting thing that most Christians are familiar with: is that he calls himself the chief of all sinners. And we go, well, all of us could say that. And it's like, yeah, that's a fun contest to have. and We all would be humble enough to say that we are the chief of all sinners. But what Paul means is that, that this moment when Jesus says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is this real interesting call in his life that he is the one who studied the scriptures. He is the one who was in synagogue from birth learning this over and over again. In one of his letters, he said, zeal for the Lord consumed me. And yet he says, when he says he's the chief of all sinners, he means it in the sense of he should have known better. He should have been able to see this new act that God was doing in Jesus Christ, and yet he was blind to it, blind to the point where he set his life against it to crush it. And so Paul, this guy writing to this, this church in Ephesus, is this guy who, who meets Jesus on the road, is struck blind, and then he's sent to a house where a believer heals him. Then he sort of goes into hiding for about three years, most likely reading his Bible over and over and over again, trying to figure out what's going on with this new movement, this new thing that's happening that seems to be happening through Israel. Why do you persecute me is the voice that Paul would be familiar with. Why do you persecute me? You know me, Paul. You know me. I'm among you, but you can't see this work I've done in my son Jesus Christ. And then Paul comes out of that time renewed with a new zeal. And so what's interesting about him is that he never denies that he should continue zeal. But his zeal is transferred from this from his close sort of Jewish sect to this new mission to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. And so as we, the book of Acts progresses, it moves from telling the stories of the, of the first people gathered for the church in Acts 2, right after the death of Jesus, to moving out to pretty much as far as you could think in the Western world. We took that Paul, you know, Paul wants to go to Rome because Rome is like like New York. But even throughout the book, he says, after I get to Rome, I want to go to Spain. Paul wants to reach the ends of the earth, known earth at this time, with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what he does on this journey is he sets up communities that worship this way along the path. He sets up places where people can live this message. Now, the second question is, so who is Paul? That gives you a sense of who Paul is. Second question is, did Paul write this letter? Many of you have Bibles with uh, like three pages before any book that like is, uh, if you're in a Bible study, people hate those pages because somebody says something and you say, well, here in my Bible, it says that this is this way. And you're like, that's not, the, <laughs> that's the addition to your Bible. Yes, it's in your Bible, but that's a. Um, it, but if you have those pages in your Bible, it'll normally take one side, either that Paul didn't write this or that the authorship of Paul is in question, because most of our early manuscripts don't have sort of that. Kim's looking it up right now, am I right? It's in there, okay. Um, I know too much about study Bibles for all my angst against them. Um, uh, so, I might, I've read a lot about this this week. I don't know enough about all the issues at stake, but for our sake, we will call him Paul. We will call the author of this letter Paul, and we'll stick with that throughout it. So if I say Paul, and you've convinced yourself through something you've read that Paul didn't write the book of Ephesians, just say that that's the name with it, and it's, I have a commentary that uses A.E., and it's author of Ephesians, throughout, and every time I read it, it annoys me, because I'm like, who's A.E. again? And it just says author of Ephesians. So I refuse to do that to you. We will call him Paul, and I think there's enough good evidence to say that Paul wrote this letter. There's also enough to throw it into question. The second thing, and you might see this in your Bible as footnoted, is did he write it to the church in Ephesus? And that's also in question. Our earliest manuscripts of, of this letter don't contain to the church in Ephesus. It just sort of goes on. Now that's, um, that may not matter as much to us. But, but there's two schools of thought on this. One is that the early church has seemed to take in homilies and pass sermons and pass them around as letters. That's one of the best theories for what we have in the book of Hebrews is that that's a sermon that's been sort of passed around almost as a letter. Is that the case with Ephesians? Possibly. But the other thing is that, the, that it's not uncommon that he would have written sort of a circular letter to the churches in one region that was meant to be passed around them. And so this letter could have also been written sort of as a uh, as a letter that's passed among a group of churches in a certain region in the world. And the, and the early church and its wisdom adds to Ephesus to that so that we know which reason which region it's passed around. And all these are very nerdy questions. Paul also introduces himself as an apostle. An apostle is this one, the sent one who sort of comes on the, as, as part of somebody else's message. Paul comes as one who is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. One of the most interesting parts about Paul and many of the new the characters in the New Testament is what happens after they meet Jesus is they almost have this idea of, I don't make myself anymore. You know, have this saying in our society of like a self-made man. Almost every New Testament follower of Jesus would be like, oh, heck no. I became captured by this message that was beyond me. I became this through the will of God, and this has set me on a different path in my life. I'm no longer just this self-made person, or I'm no longer just Paul, but I've been pushed into a mission into the world. And so that answers a little bit of who Paul is. But but one of the things that we're doing with Ephesians is we're going to read it as if it's inviting us into a drama, or it's inviting us into a play. It's inviting us into being the church. Because one of the reasons that happens is that when the church sort of compiles these letters together and makes what we call the New Testament, they don't become just the letter to the church in Ephesus. They become the letter to the church in America, to the church in Colorado, to the church in Glenwood Springs, to Defiance Church. They become canon for us in that they invite us into this drama that Paul is seeing clearly. They become part of our lives, and so they invite us into something that we are to take part in, too. And so as I I did the the nerdy spiel today, that is the first, if you don't have a study Bible, then then you got it here. Um, But as we go forward, we're going to look at it more, is what does this letter mean for us and for our lives? What does this letter mean for us as the saints gathered not in Ephesus, but as the people of God gathered in Glenwood Springs? And one of the things that I want to sort of begin with is Paul's notion of time. Now, this is uh, drawing with Pastor Matt this week. (laughs) <laughs> this is the uh, you guys are going to sign me up for a Bob Ross e-course or something like that um, very bad um, this is the first sort of conception of time that I think most people have And you could have put a dot in there that like I'm born and time just goes forward in a line right and then I'll die and that this is time it's existed before me it will continue after me. but if you think about this conception of time right it means different things for different people's lives. Like, if this is the frame of reference you have in time, this is just a, it existed before me, I was born, I will die, and I'm just gonna go forward. Depending on your temperament, it might mean like, okay, well, I should try to get as much money or sex or power in my life. If you're a good person, you might say, well, my my mission now is to uh, exterminate this, the lack of clean water as best as I can in my life. That all I know of life is just sort of this imminent frame, this flat thing, and I have to do as much in my life, based on whatever my temperament is, to, to do the most of that. I think this is the default view for most of us, particularly the default view for North American people, is that you know we're born and we should project in our lives as far as we can, the best as we can, what we can earn and what we can do, or what we can save, or how we can change the world. Uh, it's probably This is probably functioning in almost every graduation speech ever. <laughs> Here's the conception of time that I think a lot of Christians have, um, and I think it comes a little bit from the Jewish imagination as well, is that time is sort of moving and it has this ending point. It has this moment where time ends. What happens on the other side of that is, is new life begins, right? And so I'm living my life to go to heaven, and I will die, and what happens when I die is I will go to heaven. So there's almost this disjunction in time, right? Time doesn't continue on, but it has a different sense. It begins in a different place. I think that this is, we can see this at somewhat in seeds in the New Testament, but you can see some problems with it. What becomes the purpose of my life? Merely to reach the end. What becomes the, the point of my suffering and my challenges? Pretty much nothing. Um, what And it, this one, I think, functions, I mean, just in general sort of civic religion, too. We shouldn't blame just the church. Is that, like, I'll just go someplace else someday, um, you know, so that, that our ethics don't matter. Now, we've talked about this phrase before, but it's another one. This is where this gospel of sin management can enter in. Well, like, since I'm going to go someplace else and I die I go to heaven, I'll spend most of my life just trying to be a little bit more holy. All of us should spend some of our lives trying to eliminate the sin from our lives. That's part of the call to be a Christian. But in this frame of reference, it's only so that I can die and go to that other place, right? Well, this is the way that, that, that time functions for Paul, which is a little bit different, is that for Paul, that bottom line represents sort of time as we know it, right? This is time with all its suffering, with all its pain, that for him would go back all, all the way to the book of Genesis and the fall and the frustration that we feel. And what happens in the cross is that there's break-off into this new time. And what you can see here is that both lines of time are going through, goes through a period where they simultaneously exist. Does that make sense? Is that, that there's going to be an overlap of the ages. And when Paul talks about the ages, this is the type of thing he's thinking of, is that God has begun a new age, a new time, a new place, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul sees clearly is that there is something new had begun, and through through becoming a Christian, you join on to that second time that doesn't end. Now, that bottom line that does end, it should be clear, it ends with the consummation of all things. For Paul, is that God will come and extinguish the forces of death and of evil, of slavery and sin. Uh, um, You could even say the things that alienate each other from ourselves and from God, addiction. Poverty, God will come and put an end to those things and consummate time. And the future time, which the book of Revelation says will go on, will be in a city that doesn't need light. And so that's sort of where that goes off. Now, one of the things I wanted to mention is I drew across where this new time begins. Because I think it's funny, there's a a theologian who I appreciate uh, who died in the 70s. They asked him when he was saved because he came to America. He was a German theologian. And the American evangelicals who had him were like, when were you saved? They were really interested in that question. And he would say, approximately 30 AD, um, approximately sometime when God committed that act that started this new time and this new place. I think for Christians, it would also be almost more appropriate to mention our baptisms as well, because our baptisms is the moment where in which we die to this bottom time and are transferred to this new timeline that continues into eternity. And so in the Gospel of John, says in John 3.16, a passage that many are familiar with, says that, that they shall have eternal life. John doesn't mean that past image, that they will go, time will end, and they'll have eternal life in the future, but that in, through joining Jesus, they have eternal life now. They can move into the eternal kind of life in this space. And so what does this mean for the book of Ephesians is that, is that, as it invites us into a drama, it invites us into being a people on that separate timeline. Through the language of calling out to the community he writes to, believes this grace and peace, he's inviting them into a different world in a different space in a different relationship to time and to being and living. The language we have for this is church, which is like the most anticlimactic part of a sermon ever, right? The language we have for this new thing, this new humanity, this space beyond time in which we can participate in the good work that God has done through Jesus Christ is church. Um, If you didn't laugh, you haven't been in church long enough. Um, and, And you can clearly see the ways in which we fail at this, too, is that it's a challenge for us to sort of live into this future that God has called us to yet there's a quote on the back of the bulletin that's a bit longer, but, but one of the phrases comes from that. Is that it says that, that the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. That God, in his infinite wisdom, we might second-guess it, but it is his infinite wisdom, has decided that there will be a people on earth and a place on earth that will live and model this call of grace and peace, of this new life in Jesus to the rest of the world. And this is what we call the church, this place where we're called to be. Now, going back to the timeline just for one second, is is this idea of heaven and earth, it plays into that. But what happens in the book of Revelation is that heaven comes to earth, is that there's this fusion of the city that comes and takes place in earth. You know, Christians have this bad rep of trying to be people where are like, well, will just get to heaven. And that comes from that second sort of conception of time. But really, what we see in, throughout the New Testament and its pinnacle is this fusion of that. Most notably in our church, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, on earth as it is in heaven. In our constitutive prayer of who we are as Christians, it names that we ask for that this place would be as it is in heaven. And so one of the challenges as we go through the book of Leviticus is to read it not just as as scripture, but to read it as script, to read it as a way for us to perform and to live our lives as Paul is calling us into this place. Because for Paul, we are the holy ones, he mentions, for we are the faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesus is mentioned in Acts 2. Paul goes to the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. And this is an amazing story. He goes there, and first thing he does is he casts out a demon of sort of this fortune teller that's just bugging him, uh, which is great. He goes to the marketplace every day to do his work. Uh, uh, This woman who can sort of see the future is is sort of accosting him, and he casts the demon out, almost in annoyance. But it upsets the people there quite a bit. But in the next scene, there he is in the city of Ephesus. And he's sort of dealing with the struggles of that he's reaching people. And what happens is, is these people stop buying sculptures to their god and start stop going to the temples where they participate in the worship of this god. He's proclaiming sort of this idea of this one true god, and all these other gods aren't real. And so it's disrupting this world. And one of the guys who makes these sculptures gets everybody into a fury, and they go to the, to the big arena, and they're all demanding what is going on here. And it's dispersed. Paul wants to go and his friends talk him out of it because he's like, big crowd. that's That will enable me to share my message. He doesn't quite realize that they will also want to kill him before he even gets into the arena. Uh, thank God for good friends. Um, but uh, Paul has... So what happens is the Christians stop participating in the world as usual. And this is sort of the community he's writing to, but this is, this is my version of that for us, is that imagine... On the right is the Wall Street Bowl, and on the left is the New York Yankees logo, if you don't know it. Uh, If you don't know it, grace and peace to you. Um, And the bottom is sex and fertility. I was gonna put a picture of uh, whoever the sexiest man in the world was this year, but I decided why be a stumbling block in church for those who who don't need it. But let's take these three (laughs) images and just go with it, all right? Um, You can imagine George Clooney up there if you want. the uh these three images is is sort of what these christian communities are threatening all at once in Ephesus this big temple is almost like um if it's doing well the city is doing well if it's doing well the community is doing well that's almost like our relationship to sports teams but even more so wall street this this sort of this is the place of economy and we're Money exchanges. It's this place where these things are sort of like the fluctuator for the whole community. And the other thing about this god that sort of lives in Ephesus or has her big temple in Ephesus is she's also sort of this goddess of sex and fertility as well. And all these are sort of compacted into one image. What happens is, as Paul is talking to people, is they stop participating in sort of all three of these things in the way that they used to. Now imagine New York is 10,000 people. Ephesus is much bigger than that, but imagine you're in a community where everybody is participating in going to Yankees games, buying and worrying about the stocks on Wall Street, and worshipping sort of a sex fertility thing, and all of a sudden a large amount of the people just stop doing that. This is what's happening with the early Christians as this message spreads throughout the world, is they stop sort of doing all of these things. now. It's worth interesting that, that these images equal a god or goddess in, in, in Roman and Greek society. Um, we live in a society that doesn't compound these things up to that level. But but in your own prayer life and discernment, you can ask, to which way do these things become gods to us in our own way? To which way in which we move from making idols physically? Do we move from making idols in our hearts? That's it's Calvin for you, is that the heart is a perpetual idol-maker. Um that's something that we do. Although I do like the bull, because it's like, man, we've got stories of the bull in uh in Egypt. When they leave, they build a bull. God doesn't like the bull. Um it's the bull's uh who's the god? Now see as a pastor, this is bad for me. Does anybody remember the name of the god who's associated with bulls? Yes, that's the one. Uh he also likes child sacrifice. Um so the Christians just stop participating in this way of being in the world. They become something else. And what happens is, is they're planning this new form of life in the midst and the shell of an old form of life. They're not seeking to, to sort of tear down temples at this point. They're not seeking to eradicate um, the New York Yankees at this point. What they're seeking to do is just build their own faithful collective communities of faithfulness to this one call to this one God. They're seeking to find places for this, and so what does Paul call these people? He calls them the the uh, holy people in Ephesus, faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does What does Paul call us gathered here today, the holy people in Glenwood Springs? Now it's worth noting that that this language, you guys thought I don't I, w- I would be done with Leviticus. Um, <laughs> Uh, In this language, this call of holy people, Paul is taking this this line from, from Exodus and Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament that comes in the New Testament, is that through your relationship to this God, through being elected by this God, through being chosen in this God, you are now God's holy people. So if you know Christians and you say, they don't quite look like what this is called, this is more like Paul telling them, this is who you are. You may not have the moral performance to match up with being God's holy people. And if you read Paul's other letters, such as that to the Corinthians, you'll find out that they really don't have the moral performance to be being called God's holy people in Ephesus. But what Paul is doing is he's reminding them who they are in God. They're called out of the world to be God's holy people. That's who we are as well. It's called out of the world to be God's holy people in this place. It's almost like these ways in which like, you would have a family who said, you know, don't do anything that makes your parents look bad. Don't do anything that makes your family look bad. We don't quite have the shame and honor society at the moment, although, you know, when my mom dropped us off for youth mission trips, it was very clear, don't do anything that makes me look bad. Um, uh, but that sort of the world that they lived in is sort of this. This this is who you are. I'm calling you towards the goodness of who you are, and then the faithful in Jesus Christ is this is this almost this uh, political term. Now when Brian read, we read the same passage twice. Brian read it from a different translation of the New Testament that says the faithful in King Jesus. The Christians are going around the world proclaiming that there's somebody else in charge other than Caesar. There's somebody else in charge other than the powers that be. There's somebody else who we owe allegiance to. There's somebody else who we participate in life. In. This idea, and, and so King Jesus is this political term. The faithful in this other political reality, political entity. Now it's worth noting that, that we have like a dim sense of politics in America—it's either like right or left, Republican or Democrat, whatever. But actually, what's happening in this call to these people is that they're called to be almost this third space of allegiance to something that doesn't exist in the world the same way that the other powers do. Their belonging is something else that is—is is this place of life in this world bent on death? It's almost like they're moving to a different king. They're moving to a different allegiance. They're transferring the ways in which they are in the world. And this is is what the church is called to be. It's this different space that's not bound by the ways of the world. To us, early Christian self-designation as saints, which is another way of translating the start, is almost embarrassing. But the world once expressed much as what, what is meant by contrast society. The church under self understood itself to be the sacred people of God's possession, a people with a different pattern of life which differed from the world. This is the call for us as we dive into the book of Leviticus. How is the book of Leviticus going to help the saints, the faithful in Jesus Christ of Defiance Church? move into to a different place of being in the world, so much so that we're a contrast society. you're so familiar with the language and the Sermon on the Mount contains that you will be salt and that you will be light. Salt is something that brings contrast to food. Light brings contrast to darkness. That we're called, in a way, to be a contrast to what's going on in the world. Which brings us back to grace and peace. Grace and peace is this, is this speech act, almost. Speech act language is, is language that also does something when it's proclaimed. So if you take an oath of office or if you go to court and raise your right hand, your speech act is that you're going to do that thing. For Paul, grace and peace to these communities isn't just like, hello, I'm here. But it's a call to be grace and peace in the world. It's called to find grace and peace in your life. And so as with the book of Ephesians, we have this bookend. This letter ends with peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God, with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with undying love. Grace and peace till the end of the book. Peace and grace. It's a call for our lives, let us pray. God, you have brought us out of the world to be light, to be salt, to be a contrast to the ways that the world is spent on death, division, destruction, to be a people of grace and peace. May through our study and journey with the book of Ephesians, we hear that call that we are those people. By virtue of your call to us, we are those people. May we find a home in this place. May we find a life together, not alone, that empowers us and strengthens us into the shape of your Son. May your love and may your Spirit, may your life bind us together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.